dust bowl refugee just a dust bowl refugee and i wonder will i always be a dust bowl refugee that song was written by a young woody guthrie who on april 14 1935 took shelter as an apocalyptic blizzard of dirt consumed his then-town of Pampa, Texas. It was Black Sunday. And when writing of its devastation in the Lubbock Evening Herald, AP reporter Robert E. Geiger became the first to deem the affected area the Dust Bowl. Spanning multiple states, that storm alone is estimated to have displaced over 300,000 tons of topsoil and was just one of many that over eight years for some 440,000 to leave Oklahoma alone. For many, the end destination was the promised land of California, and Route 66 provided a path of exodus. Some, with cars loaded, took it all the way to Los Angeles. But at Barstow, many more junctioned north to the San Joaquin Valley in hopes of work in the fields. Most found poor wages, dire living conditions, and discrimination. But while met with contempt and seemingly insurmountable odds, the Yokies proved far from helpless, and not only transformed California, but in Bakersfield, created a sound that forever altered American music. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, I want to tell you about another podcast that I love. It's called Other Men Need Help. Hosted and created by Mark Pagan, Other Men Need Help is an award-winning podcast that offers a playful but tender look at the world of masculinities. In each episode, Mark and his team take us into the world of the male imagination with character-led and personal storytelling that blends field reporting, funny and heartfelt interviews, absurdist sketches, musical numbers, cultural and historical analysis, and whimsical adventures. From excavating where his mind really went after he found out you make more money than him, to documenting the difficulty and hope in finding love as a 60-year-old widower, each episode highlights affection, tenderness, authenticity, and accountability in the performance and insecurities of masculinities. As empathy is core to vanishing postcards, if you've been enjoying this show, then I think you'll probably love Other Men Need Help, too. It is a magnificently funny and warm treat, and you can find Other Men Need Help wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. From the drought land and the south land come the white kids and me. It's a hot old dusty highway for a dust bowl refugee. Well, my granny, she was from Ada, Oklahoma. And they came right through, they came out Route 66. But most of the Okies came this way because they was looking for farm work and they was looking where they can pick some cotton. I was raised by the Okies. But, and when you're in Bakersfield, I'm gonna tell you something. That's, that, <laughs> that's where you're going to find a lot of the Okies. About midway through the Grapes of Wrath, after making it to California, Tom Joad meets a father and son who are heading back to the Panhandle. 
At least we can starve to death with the folks we know, the older man says to Tom before warning. Oki used to mean you were from Oklahoma. Now it means you're a dirty son of a bitch. Oki means you're scum. Don't mean nothing itself. It's the way they say it. And having grown up in the Arvin federal government camp, where the Jodes eventually found some dignity, Jimmy Phillips tells me Steinbeck wasn't writing fantasy. 1945, and we moved into what they called the Arvin Federated Labor Camp. That's where they got their start, and they found work. And that's what they came out from Oklahoma to do, just like everybody else. We moved, when we moved in 1945 to the government camp, we lived there in a tent circle, in the tent circle. Now that's the canvas-covered cabins with plyboard around the bottom, and that was your house. It was a, a 10 by 12, and we slept in the same bed. It was a uh, regular bed, we slept sideways, and all of us slept in that bed. Five, mom, dad, myself, Sue, and Kendall. And, but way back when we first started out there, everybody, they said, no, we don't want our kids affiliated with those people. They can't go to school in Bakersfield. They can't go to school here because they have lice. They're full of lice. This wasn't true. As Jimmy says, the camp had showers, laundry facilities, and even an electric socket where you could plug in an iron if you wanted. Now 80, with an impeccably groomed mustache befitting his barber credentials, Jimmy lives in Tehachapi in a ranch home that seems downright palatial when compared to the tent his family shared. But he insists the camp was a great place to grow up. And while Oki was long meant as a slur, it's a title he came to identify with well before Merle Haggard made it okay. I'm proud to be and have been and lived through those hard times and which it was hard. I know I still sound like an Oki, and when I get around Oki, it even gets worse, you know, but, but there are certain things that we would say back then that you, you don't say dog, you know, it's dog. You know, well, where's that dog? And uh, a pliers, a pair of pliers, my dad would always say, hey, Jim, hand me them pliers. How do you spell pliers? P-L-A-R-S, yeah, you don't, <laughs> I mean, and, and there was so many things, far. Well, we need to build a far. How do you spell far? F-A-R. I, I flunk spelling all the time because they said spell it like it sounds. I did. Considering this, it's little wonder Jimmy took refuge in and focused most of his attention on music, where he so excelled at drums, he began gigging on sessions at age 16 and found himself at the center of a scene at its creative peak. For all through my all through my years, I cut hair and go play music, and that's the way I wanted to keep it. I had offers to go with Buck and Merle and and Charlie Bright, I, 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 Marty Robbins. He wanted me to move back to Nashville and and work for him. And but I knew I was Bakersfield Sound. I'm Bakersfield Sound, and I'm going to be Bakersfield Sound till the day I die. <laughs> or you listen to the radio, that is a very familiar sound. That happens to be the number one country record in the whole United States of America. This guy has had nine straight number one songs, and it's always a pleasure to have him back. Buck Owens and the Buckaroo. Go down. I, I say that the Bakersfield sound was not a sound so much as a time and a place. 
a lot of energy, uh, a lot of optimism. You know, you had Okies uh, who had brought their music west. You had uh, people who'd come west during World War II to work in the shipyards and the aircraft factories. You know, the comparison I make is to uh, you know, Paris in the 1920s with Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein. That's Bob Price, a reporter who spent 32 years covering features on the local beat. His book, The Bakersfield Sound, is a definitive tome on this city's music history. Driving me through Merle Haggard's old neighborhood of Oildale, there's no mistake in this industrial town for the left bank. But while artists like Fitzgerald and Baldwin found their voices in Paris, it's true that talents like Buck Owens, Don Rich, and Ralph Mooney found theirs here. And while the lost generation revolutionized American letters, these cats did the same for American music. And Bob tells me a little about what set them and this place apart. Uh, the difference between Nashville and, and Bakersfield on a couple levels. One, Nashville uh, was and is a recording industry city. Bakersfield was a live music city. Uh, you had just a whole lot of clubs. Uh, recording artists would come here from Los Angeles and, and uh, Las Vegas and other places to perform, not to record. They go to Nashville to record. They come to Bakersfield to perform. And then also, you know, sort of stylistically, uh, Bakersfield music, especially early on, owed a lot to rock and roll that was coming out at the time. Little Richard and Buddy Holly and, uh, you know, Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley and the Comets. Jimmy agrees with this and puts matters in a little more simple terms. I've always said that right off the bat that uh, the Bakersfield sound, it was created in the bars. And Nashville was created in the church. The bars in Bakersfield were famously loud and rowdy. And when you think about what it must have been like to gig in these spaces, you can see how much of its evolution was born out of practicality. Its hard driving rhythms kept the crowds happy with fun, danceable beats, while Buck Owens found the newly invented Fender overpowered any drunken hollers. You know, Buck may, maybe uh, deserves all the credit for having popularized it, uh, at least in Bakersfield, because he liked the way it sort of cut through the noise, cut through the din, cut through the, you know, through the drums, and uh, just had this, you know, this this edge to it that he liked, and it just became uh, became popular, and it became popular, obviously, in other genres of music, but uh, I think you got to give Buck Owens some credit for, for popularizing the Telecaster. There's a place down the street we call Sam's Place, and it starts a jumping every evening when the sun goes down. You can always find me down at Sam's Place, for that's where the gang all hangs around. While Buck Owens' recording of the Red Simpson-written Sam's Place captures the spirit of a night at a Bakersfield honky-tonk, it was at the Blackboard, a notorious, windowless cavern of a saloon, where he started as a member of the Orange Blossom Playboys. Well, I mean, the, the story that, that's told most often is the night that uh, Joe Mathis, Joe and Rosalie Mathis, uh, who were from Virginia, uh, came out to, they they moved to California, they'd moved to Los Angeles. They came up to visit the Blackboard in, I think, 1954, 53, something like that. And uh, they were used to shows where people sat politely in their chairs and watched the show. And uh, at the Blackboard, people were dancing and, you know, it was pretty wild. And uh, so he, he penned this song, uh, Dim Lights, Thick Smoke and Loud, Loud Music. Uh, but that, I mean, that summarized it. It was a kind of a rowdy, loud 
place. Our home and little children mean nothing to you. A house filled with love and a husband so true. You'd rather have a drink with the first guy you meet in the only home you know, the club down the street. I, I played I played blackboard one night there, and the Hell's Angels came in, and I thought I'm dead. <laughs> they sat right by me, and and I thought, okay. Now I was told, I was told. A fight breaks out, you take that drum seat and you fold it on and take the top off of it, fold that drum seat up and stand, put your back up against the wall and stay there and just swing that drum seat. <laughs> I thought, well, if that's what I have to do, I'll do it. I've seen this one lady, I mean, well, this man hit this, hit, hit his wife. And this guy right beside him, he jumped up and, and he flattened him. And I mean, blood went everywhere. And and so this lady, she went over and hit that man that hit her husband. And she said, and she pulled off her high six inch high heels and I watched her hit him in the head, man. Blood was everywhere. Because she told that guy, she said, this fight's between me and my husband, not you and him or you and me. She said it's between me and him. You stay out of it. I, I know there was, uh, yeah, I played where chicken wire was up around us. I sure have. Them lights stick smoke and loud, loud music is the only kind of life you'll ever understand. Them lights stick smoke and loud, loud music. You'll never make a wife do a home-loving man. So if you appreciated Jimmy's language lesson, then I must take a quick break to let you know about another podcast I think you'll love. It's called Subtitle, and it tells stories about languages and the people who speak them. It's produced in documentary style by award-winning journalists Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay, and is smart but approachable and totally engaging. One episode I particularly enjoyed explores how climate change is threatening Louisiana's French speakers, while others have touched on words programmed to make us laugh and even people's very first and last words. You can find subtitle on Apple or wherever you're listening. And now, let's get back to Bakersfield. The blackboard was just one of many honky-tonks where people could drink and dance away their cares. And driving down a road paralleling an industrial railroad track, Bob tells me about the scene that once thrived here. This is uh, Edison Highway, and uh, there were a lot of a lot of clubs on, along this way. Two of the prominent ones were the Lucky Spot and the Clover Club. There were some other ones called, uh, there was Chet's Club. But this was the pe people would, you know, they'd start at the blackboard, um, party for a while, drive all the way across town to Edison Highway and, and uh, Merle Haggard and Cousin Herb and uh, Fuzzy Owen, all those guys, their hangout was Edison Highway. <laughs> Nothing is very recognizable. It's pretty, pretty derelict now. Um, derelict is the best way to describe this stretch of road, as most buildings have been replaced by scrap yards. Yeah, a lot of these landmarks have dried up and gone away. And uh, 
and it's an awful lot of, uh, you know, if you look to the right, you'll see an empty lot, and it used to be, and there's just a lot of those going on. Uh, so that's uh, the sad but true state of affairs. But on 18th Street, Bob points out an abandoned gray cement hut that's still standing. This was the headquarters, this incredibly tiny building was the headquarters of Tally Records in 1956, 55, 56. Uh, this is where um, Buck Owens recorded a couple of songs, a couple of rockabilly songs, Hot Dog and a couple others. At the same time as you go to Memphis, and I mean, obviously Sun Records was I mean, a bit more famous than Tally Records, but you can tour Sun Records in, in Memphis. Why can't you tour this? This site frustrates me, and I'm pained to learn the blackboard itself was torn down to clear space for the county's history museum complex. You know, museum people will say, well, it was just this sort of strip mall looking building that you know, wasn't very remarkable. Uh, um, it had been used as a shooting range at one time, and there was supposedly, you know, lead embedded in the walls. That's the excuse we were given. But it was, it was torn down by people who are in the business of education. And uh, it's on museum grounds. And it's in itself, you know, the, the old blackboard was, you could argue, a museum piece. And uh, nevertheless, they knocked it down. And you would, you know, if they're going to put up something that's, uh, you know, honors Kern County history in some way, that would be one thing. But it's still a, it's just a grassy lot now. So it, there's no really reason that I can see to have knocked it down. And that building, you know, ironically, the, uh, the new Bakersfield Sound museum that they're building, the new exhibit, uh, freestanding building, is only about 30 paces from where the old blackboard was. So they could have easily hung on to it and turned it into a pretty good little museum, but it's gone. I asked Bob where people should go hear the Bakersfield sound nowadays, and with a smiling laugh, he tells me Austin. And Pat Evans, who owns the store and venue World Records, where he's booked and promoted acts like Los Lobos, Fiona Apple, and Collective Soul since 1982, doesn't seem to argue otherwise. What is the Bakersfield sound right now? I had a, a customer of ours from, um, she moved here from New Jersey, and she said, you know, back, in, back, in, back home, I can go see live music every night. And uh, me and my friends were, were just, we're just big music fans. And my friends have said, okay, so tell us about the Bakersfield Sound. And she said, and I told them, the Bakersfield Sound is just a, a patch on a hat. It, there's nothing, it's, there's nothing here that has anything to do with the Bakersfield Sound. Um, it just, this just happened to be the town where this happened. I, the world really wants there to be a Bakersfield Sound, that they can come visit, much like Branson or something like that, but there's, they want it to be these, you know, these uh, dives and say some, something really authentic. I, I know some investors that have come to me and say, we want to open a place that has the Bakersfield sound. Well, they don't live here. It has the Bakersfield sound. And any night of the week, you can go hear the Bakersfield sound on that stage. Well, I put on concerts in Bakersfield. That has, that's just something you, you have nostalgia for. It doesn't exist nor do the people that want to come out and see it exist. You can't keep that thing going where no wife wanted their husband to hang out. But while much has changed in Bakersfield over the last 50 some odd years, much remains the same. Agriculture still drives much of the valley's economic engine and people still migrate here to work the fields, 
brown skin is really one of the very, and you know, one of the few things that's, that's different. Uh, Okies had their own language in, in a sense. Um, they have their uh, distinctive religion, their distinctive music, their distinctive foods. Um, you know, they really had a lot of, a lot in common. There's, there's always a class of people that needs to, to work jobs that are less desirable. You know, just the way it's, it's always been. And, um, you know, Latinos are now filling that role. But, you know, a generation and a half ago, it was, it was the Okies. While the honky-tonks that dotted the Edison Highway have shuttered, I notice El Rancho Grande nightclub stands just a block away from the Clover's old address. And if music scene here exists, it's powered today by people with names like Gutierrez and Abigail. I see this that night in Strambler Park where taco trucks and michelada tents have set up for the second annual Tejano Music Festival. As dusk falls, dates and boots, jeans and cowboy hats begin filtering in to see acts like Michael Salgado, Grupo Califas, and a trio of young women called Las Caligope. Um, Calliope is actually a Greek goddess of music, song, dance, and poetry. And it feels good to have like a name that has a meaning behind it, because a lot of groups, like they just have a name because it sounds nice, you know? Or it looks nice, like let's say like on a screen or like on paper, it looks nice. But it feels nice like whenever like people ask, oh, like what does Calliope mean? And then like you're able to actually say what it means. And it has like an important like significance behind the name. Dressed in satin gowns, purple rebosos, and floral patterned felt hats, all serve vocals with founder Selena Ruelas on violin, Tegasi Valdez on guitaron, and Rosana Valdez on vihuela. I would say our foundation and fundamentals are based on mariachi. And pretty much from that, um, we used all the knowledge and the experience that we've gotten from mariachi to just pretty much bloom out and 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 play songs that of other genres that we want to hear, not just the traditional mariachi, but the traditional mariachi is actually what got us here. In addition to Clásicos, their set features a tribute to Selena and even a cover of Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. But mariachi is unquestionably their foundation, and when I ask how they discovered this music, all cite their parents who traced their roots to Mexico. It actually comes from my grandfather, which is my dad's dad. Um, he's someone I never got to meet, uh, but played a very, very important inspiration in my life. Um, he had his own mariachi in Guadalajara, and the name of his mariachi was Mariachi Guadalajara de Pio Quinto Ruelas. So when my parents, um, you know, growing up, it was something that my mother she wanted us to pursue. She wanted us to pursue the tradition of music for my father. So music, um, it, was, it came from my family. It's in my blood and it's just beautiful how growing up in our house, we had instruments everywhere. We had instruments practically in every room and we had more than probably 30 instruments. So was, our living room was literally a music store. Oh yeah, my mom is from Zacatecas and my dad's from Jalisco. My mom came to the States when she was 14 years old and started working at that age. And my dad came to the States when he was around 17, 18 years old. They're, you know, very hard workers and at a young age, you know, they got married young and, you know, bought their house, you know, got their American dream. And But yeah, that's how my parents came and they're the ones that 
inspired me to, to you know to play music because I come from a musical family as well so I guess it's like pretty similar because everyone like they come here to work and they all have that same mentality that they want to that they want to like make money for their family they want to keep going and people here are very hard workers they're very very hard workers like even like in terms of like farm workers people like any type of workers and musicians too like being a musician, a lot of people think, you know, it's easy, you know, like you just play and everything, but like sometimes like you play hours and hours every week and then, I mean, it's the same for any type of work. You know, I've been doing a lot of exploration of what was known as the Bakersfield sound. And I've had a lot of people tell me that, oh, the music scene in Bakersfield is dead. It doesn't exist. <laughs> what do you say to that? No, <laughs> I'm like, I would be the first to say that because I do check out a lot of uh, bands. There's so many different types of bands here. And I wouldn't say not one band is alike. They're all different. Um, so the music scene here, it is great. And, I, and we definitely support the local artists and musicians. So yes, there is music here in Bakersfield. It just has a different groove. And changes like these are to be expected. And while I lament my search for a dirty honky-tonk came up dry, you can still catch an occasional show at the family-friendly Crystal Palace, which Buck Owens built and opened himself back in 96. Also, the sound itself is doing just fine. It paved the way for Graham Parsons and ZZ Top before getting picked up by Dwight Yoakam, Danny Lee, the Derailers, and Miami-based Mavericks. Also, not for nothing, Brad Paisley says he asks himself today, what would Buck do? And more than this, perhaps what happened in Bakersfield wasn't just about the sound, but the attitude. That is, a willingness to experiment and not simply follow, which happens all over. But when I ask Bob where traces of Oki culture is found here now, his answer is telling. You see it in the obituary page of the newspaper every, you know, every single day. I mean, there's anywhere from 1 to 20 individuals who uh, you know, came over as children in the 1930s and uh, from Oklahoma, some place in Oklahoma or Arkansas or Panhandle, Texas, and stayed. In his book, Bob says the legacy of that time needn't die with them, but to a great extent it has, before adding, it's good to remember who you were, because it says a lot about what you'll become. I think it's important for every city of any consequence to honor its past. Uh, you know, every city has something that they really need to hang on to, and the one thing Bakersfield has, or one of the few things Bakersfield has, is uh, is the Bakersfield sound. I think it's something that we just continue to celebrate. Bob says Bakersfield's identity, once upon a time, just happened to be genre-shaping American music. Its residents should never forget that. Thanks to Jimmy Phillips, the ladies of Las Calliope, whom you should follow on social, and especially Bob Price, whose book, The Bakersfield Sound, is a must-read for anyone interested in learning more about this city's impact on American music. I'll be including a purchase link in the show notes, as well as world records, where you can say hi to Pat, buy some vinyl, or maybe even check out a live act if you're in town. Thanks to Allison Rosemond for putting me in touch with Pat, and my pal and friend of the pod, Bobby Earl Smith, for his performance of Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Refugee. I also thank you for listening. If you liked this episode and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, 
It would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Kraus and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.